Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome to the newest edition of Clyburn Chronicles. We're recording this episode on May 17, 2022, the 58th anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education, the landmark decision uh, to desegregate, desegregate schools that began in South Carolina with a case called Briggs v. Uggett. Of course, if I were going to be technical about it, and I am technical sometimes, uh, uh, Briggs was the second plaintiff. Um, I often uh, talk about uh, the fact that a technicality uh, got the first case thrown out, uh, Levi Pearson filed that case, and of course, um, it was determined that though much of his property uh, was in the school district, the house that he lived in was not within the school district lines and therefore the case was thrown out. And then Harry Briggs, uh, the husband of Eliza Briggs, two people I knew uh, very well and I've gotten uh, to know their children since these two people uh, who were not extensively educated in a formal sense, stepped up and decided uh, that they uh, would move forward on this case. And of course, it was one of five cases uh, that were combined together uh, and became Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. The Briggs case, which is South Carolina edition. The Davis case in Virginia. Uh, Bolton in Washington, D.C. Uh, Gebhardt, uh, Belton v. Gebhardt uh, in uh, Delaware. And Brown was in Topeka, Kansas. I'm particularly pleased today because my guest is someone who knows the history of this case very well. I don't think he was around like I was when it was decided. In fact, I spoke to a group this morning. I said to them, uh, today, May 17th, I remember exactly where I was uh, 58 years ago today. And I do remember that. 
when that decision came down, the anticipation uh, those of us growing up over in Sumter had uh, for our future. Little did we know uh, that that only started the process. Uh, it was a long time coming. In fact, it was not until 1970 uh, that South Carolina finally started to meaningfully integrate its schools. That case resulted from some other cases that had started out back in the late 1940s. And they all started out uh, with a judge who was a South Carolinian from Charleston, uh, who uh, was um, incented uh, to do and make the rulings he did from an experience uh, that he knew of that took place in South Carolina. Uh, a case involving a soldier returning home from World War II. Uh, and he was so uh, incensed by what happened to the soldier uh, until he uh, was awakened uh, to do better. Now, a few years ago, Judge Richard Gurgle, knowing of this case, decided that he would do some extensive research on the case. And he did. And he has written a book about that case, the case of Isaac Woodard, a World War II soldier coming home from the war who was arrested beaten and blinded. Uh, that story changed history because not only did it impress uh, this particular judge, Jay Waiters Waring, but it also impressed the president of the United States, Harry Truman. When he found out about that case, Harry Truman did some things. Uh, that um, led to the integration of the armed services. Richard Gurk is here with us, federal judge from South Carolina, now occupying the same courthouse uh, that was occupied by J. Waiters Waring. Uh, and I want him to just share with us what this whole case meant to him and I want to also share with you some of the things he's done, uh, even since he's been our federal judge down in Charleston, uh, to help bring some modicum of justice and a proper application of history uh, to these issues. Judge Gerger, thank you so much for joining us today. It's and, uh, su such a pleasure to join you, Congressman. Um, to share what is remarkably a South Carolina story. That is, um, many people perceive um, that the, um, the story of Brown versus Board of Education was a Topeka, Kansas story. And um, I don't wanna take anything from the Brown family and, and the young lady who was the plaintiff. They were courageous people. They, were, they, they had their own crosses to bear in this struggle. 
but the first case challenging public schools segregation ever filed was in the United States District Court in Charleston before a, what became a three-judge panel. And the case was brought by 21 plaintiffs who knew when they filed that lawsuit, they were from Somerton, South Carolina, that they were putting their lives in jeopardy. They were putting their financial uh, well-being in jeopardy. They were putting their families in jeopardy. And nonetheless, they took this step. Let, let me um, sort of go, as we say, let's start from the beginning here. Uh, Jay Waitis Waring was born in Charleston in 1880. He was the son of a Confederate veteran, a son of a Confederate veteran. Uh, he grew up, uh, he essentially ignored the Jim Crow life he, he grew up in. He never really reflected on it meaning anything. He accepted it as being just baked into the life of the South that uh, African-Americans were not allowed to vote and that they were relegated to the margins of American society. Um, he was appointed to the uh, federal court bench by President Roosevelt in uh, early 1942. And uh, at the time, the federal courts were kind of a sleepy institution. Uh, they mostly handled, uh, in Charleston, uh, disputes out of the port, maritime cases, and they prosecuted bootleggers. That's basically what um, the federal courts did. But World War II was going on, had just begun on December of, 40, of 41, and um, 900,000 African-American soldiers um, enlisted in the armed forces of the United States fighting um, the war in, in uh, Asia as well as against Nazi Germany. And of course, the war against Nazi Germany was a war against intolerance and racial hatred. And um, it, it, it did not pass for a moment to the black soldiers that they were fighting um, liberty for liberty abroad where their families and they did not have it at home. And um, you mentioned, uh, Congressman, that there was an awakening. There was an awakening by these, um, these soldiers, uh, many of whom came from the rural South. They had never really lived beyond their immediate communities. They had lived in a marginalized, segregated society. But the armed forces, which were segregated at the time, provided opportunities for leadership and for training and for advancement that they had never experienced in their lives. And one of those individuals was Isaac Woodard from um, Winsboro, South Carolina. He had dropped out of school in the fifth grade to help support his family, which were sharecroppers. He, they, were, they were at the bottom rung of the economic ladder of the South as struggling uh, sharecroppers. He enlisted in the service and his natural talents emerged of leadership, of courage, um, and he um, uh, steadily progressed in rank to sergeant. He was battlefield decorated for his courage in unloading ships in, in, uh, in, in the Asian theater under fire. Uh, he commanded troops. Uh, he returned with a, a chest full of medals and uh, a hope that his future would be different from his past. He was really the first of many African-American soldiers who would feel the whip of Jim Crow when they returned home. Uh, he, he Literally the day of his discharge from then what was known as Camp Gordon, now Fort Gordon in Augusta, near Augusta, he boarded a Greyhound bus on the way home. Um, he was traveling by bus between Augusta and Columbia and then on to um, a, a connection to Winsboro, South Carolina. 
Uh, he had not seen his wife for three years um, because of his military service. Um, and he, like many other people on that bus, were filled with hope as these discharging soldiers were finally returning home after serving their country. Um, the, um, uh, uh, at one point, uh, um, Sergeant Woodard, he was a sergeant by this point, a he was in uniform, <laughs> his decorations are on his chest. He approaches the white bus driver and he says, listen, at the next stop, can I step off to, to relieve myself? Buses at the time did not have uh, have uh, restrooms, and normally the policy of the Greyhound Company was that you that drivers were to accommodate such requests from their passengers, but he didn't. He found that the idea that a black man would ask for such an accommodation to be an affront, and he told him, uh, you know, uh, cursed him and said to return to his seat at the back of the bus, and um, uh, Sergeant Woodard um, responded back in kind, and he says, speak to me like I'm a man, I'm a man just like you. And the bus driver was shocked that a black man would speak back to him, but he agreed at the next stop to let the uh, sergeant step off the bus. And when he um, uh, and when he returned, nothing was said, but when he arrived in the next town, which was Batesburg, South Carolina, the bus driver, who had later earlier said I, he didn't have time to allow Woodard to use the restroom, uh, what left his bus in search of a police officer to have the sergeant arrested. Um, uh, Woodard was asked to step off the bus. He was kind of mystified. What, what's the problem? And he was, uh, he was uh, when, he, when the, he tried to explain to the local police officer, a fellow named Linwood Shull, the chief of a two-member police department in Batesburg, to what had happened, uh, the, the um, police chief took out his, his um, blackjack and hit him over the head. And arrested him, and and off he went, off the bus, abandoned. He, he was pulled off that bus, and on his way to the jail, he was repeatedly beaten and and eventually blinded through that beating by um, Linwood Shaw. The the final beating, uh, according to the sergeant, was that that uh, after he laid on the ground, um, beaten repeatedly, the uh, police chief took the end of the baton and stabbed it into both of his eyes. That's how he was blinded. Now that's a very terrible story. And um, uh, uh, he was the first of a number of returning African-American soldiers who were not accommodating Jim Crow, who also faced uh, um, uh, the wrath of law enforcement. But this case was a little unusual. He, got, he was taken the next day. Um, he, was, he was thrown in the jail, uh, but he couldn't, he, was, he woke up, he was blind and they didn't quite know what to do with him. And they took him to the VA hospital in Columbia and just unceremoniously dumped him off, claiming he had been drunk, uh, which was not true, and, um, and drunk and disorderly. And um, he was, um, and he was, he was convalescing for uh, several months. And the word um, uh, uh, trickled out that there was a black man, a sergeant at the VA hospital. Um, who had been beaten and blinded by a police officer on his day of his discharge from the hospital. And uh, a name you'll recognize, John McRae, heard about the story and went out there and interviewed him. And uh, Mr. McRae was the editor of the Lighthouse and Informer, the premier African-American newspaper of the day, and, um, and realized this was quite a story. And he um, relayed the story and summarized it to Walter White, then the executive secretary of the NAACP in New York. 
Mr. White was sort of a legendary figure, had written a major book on lynching in the 1920s. He was a very light-skinned man, and he was able to go to lynching sites a day or two afterwards and interview people. They thought he was a white man, and they told him what happened, and he wrote a, a groundbreaking book on lynching in the South. He later became the executive director of the NAACP. He was a remarkable figure. And the moment he heard this story, he felt like it captured something very important. And he um, and Sergeant Woodard's family, over after um, uh, at, at the advent of the war, most of his, par his parents and others had moved to um, New York City, to, to, uh, to the Bronx. And um, uh, the, the word came back through McRae that Walter White wanted to meet him. And he said, well, I'm going to New York when I, they finally discharged me from the hospital. And he, therein he went into, and, and when, he, when he was discharged, he was, his two sisters came and got him. Tragically, his wife abandoned him, didn't want anything to do with a blinded uh, 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 husband. And he was taken by his two sisters to New York, and they took him into the national office of the NAACP, where he encountered Walter White, and he shared these horrific events with him. Now, why is all that important? That's important because that story is later relayed personally to Harry Truman by Walter White, who was a critical uh, ally of Truman. He was uh, um, uh, he, uh, the African-American urban vote in the North and Midwest were emerging as a critical, um, uh, was emerging as a critical uh, swing vote in the um, upcoming elections, and particularly in Truman's 1948 re-election campaign. And, um, and uh, in a meeting with civil rights leaders, um, Harry Truman heard the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And there have been other stories. Uh, why does this story attract, attach such importance to Harry Truman? We'll never know. But immediately afterwards, he wrote a long letter to the Attorney General of the United States telling him the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And from that, within a few days, the Department of Justice brought an, a, um, a, a, a criminal action against the police chief of Batesburg for the deprivation of civil rights of Isaac Woodard. And let me tell you something, in 1946, that was not common for the Department of Justice to bring a civil rights case on behalf of, of the beating of a black man by a white police officer. That was not a normal practice. And it had come with essentially the direct order of the President of the United States. Well, the case ends up in front of Jay Waitis Waring, uh, the United States District Judge sitting in Charleston. And the, um, the fact that Justice Department was prosecuting this police officer was a source of tremendous political controversy in, in the state. It was denounced. It was talked about federal meddling. It was a local matter. Uh, there was no reason to prosecute this man. And, and Waitis Waring didn't know much about the case, but he was himself pretty skeptical about the, 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 why the federal government was involved in this case. But when the case was tried in November of 1946 before him, in front of an all-white, all-male jury, um, he immediately knew when he heard the account of the story by the blinded sergeant, he knew it was true. But he also knew that those jurors were not going to convict this officer. And sure enough, uh, 28 minutes after the jury began deliberating, it came out and acquitted uh, Linwood Shull for the, for the deprivation of the civil rights of Isaac Woodard. The, um, the case just had a shattering effect on Waitis Waring, and his wife, Elizabeth, attended the trial, and she, too, was horrified and traumatized by the experience. And they came home to Charleston. The case was tried in Columbia. 
And they came home to Charleston and it's, this was not something in the white community one could talk about. Racial justice, issues of unfairness, constitutional rights. There was no space in the white community in Charleston at the time for such a discussion. So what did the Warings do? They began a, a program of self-study. Uh, uh, each night, the judge would come home and Elizabeth would read out loud to him a chapter from some of the emerging important books on race and justice in America that were coming out after World War II. And these books had a profound effect on, on, on um, Waring and reinforced the, the strong feelings of justice that he acquired in watching that lawsuit. And that set him on a course that he began um, hearing civil rights, when he began hearing civil rights cases. There was the equal pay case, I'm sure, uh, Congressman, you're aware of both Charleston and Columbia teachers, a very important case, Judge Waring equalized the pay of teachers. And then in uh, 1947, he ordered the end of the white Democratic Party's primary, white primary, which was a huge thing, very controversial. And when the party tried to evade uh, the, uh, his order, he threatened to jail the 93 members of the executive committee. Uh, that got their attention. And here he was, he was prepared to jail um, white men for the for the deprivation of rights of black citizens. It was an extraordinary moment, unheard of in federal judicial circles. But he, at this point, as you say, was having an awakening, and he he suffered um, socially terribly from this. I mean, that is, uh, his former friends would not speak to him. He was ostracized. He received constant death threats. Um, a um, cross was burned in his yard. Uh, bricks were thrown through his living room window. And because of the constant death threats, the United States Attorney General ordered 24-hour U.S. Marshal protection of the judge because there were so many reliable uh, reports there were attempts to assassinate him. So here was a man who, I mean, there, there was clearly Jim Crow in full throat uh, response. And you know, it was, if the plan was to cower Judge Waring, it didn't work. In fact, he kept reading and studying um, the um, issues of race and justice in America, and he became persuaded that the um, that the granddaddy of Jim Crow, which was the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, was legally, historically, and morally wrong. And he resolved in his own mind he was going to do something about it. He was then approaching 70 years of age and anticipated retirement, and he decided he was going to do something about Plessy v. Ferguson. And he had a case on his docket, you mentioned this case, from Somerton, South Carolina. Uh, it had a, a, a sort of tortured history. It had originally been brought by Mr. Levi Pearson, uh, trying to uh, um, equalize the facilities. This is the separate but equal doctrine. Of course, Congressman, the, the doctrine was separate but equal, but the practice was separate and unequal. And uh, Absolutely. And that was, and, and, and so, the NAACP knew what a tough ride they had in the South with Southern judges. So they were trying to use Plessy as a weapon against the segregationists by saying, okay, uh, we'll have separate, but we're gonna insist equality. Thurgood Marshall, the great uh, general counsel of the NAACP, believed the South could not afford to equalize and they would eventually be forced to desegregate. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, that was their that was their case. Well, um, uh, the, the case in Summerton was in what we call an equal facilities case. That is, they were trying to equalize the buildings and the teacher pay and the and the um, and, and the um, 
uh, um, educational materials of black and white children, which were profoundly unequal. Uh, Summerton was a poster child of inequality. And, um, and Thurgood Marshall had brought this case uh, after the case was thrown out on technicalities, the original case, um, Harry Briggs and Eliza Briggs and 19 other plaintiffs then filed the suit. Um, Thurgood Marshall was representing them. The original suit had not been brought by Marshall. And um, we could go into a lot of details about that, but the plan was to challenge the equal facilities uh, and equal, lack of, e of equal educational opportunity. Well, uh, as the case was being prepared to trial, we all have what is called a pretrial conference, usually the last business day, or usually on a Friday before the beginning of a Monday trial. And Marshall came to Charleston on a Friday in, uh, 19, uh, in 1950, December of 1950, planning to try the Briggs case. And when he arrived at the courthouse, um, the, the court security officer said, uh, Mr. Marshall, Judge Waring wants to see you in his chambers. I'm sure he thought, what have I done? And he goes up to his chambers and to his surprise, and maybe the surprise of a lot of people as I've told this story, opposing counsel was not there. This is what we call an ex parte communication. Thurgood Marshall is summoned alone into Judge Waring's office. And Waring says, Thurgood, I don't want to try another separate but equal case. Bring me a frontal challenge to school desegregation. To segregation. Well, the NAACP was already anticipating this move, but the last place in the world they were going to probably bring this suit was Summerton, South Carolina, because Marshall had a well-founded fear that kill his plaintiffs if they brought such a lawsuit. And he was reluctant. He was planning to bring the first cases outside the South. But here was Judge Waring, a, a man he had come to, to respect, even revere, who was telling him the time to attack segregation root and branch had now arrived. Marshall agreed to dismiss his suit and file the first public challenge to, to school segregation in American history in the United States District Court in the District of South Carolina. Because there was a challenge to um, segregation, uh, the constitutionality of segregation under, under the state law and state constitution, a three-judge panel had to be convened. Um, uh, judge John J. Parker, chief judge of the Fourth Circuit, Judge Timmerman from Columbia, and Judge Waring, the three on the panel. And the case was a uh, was um, quite a story. Marshall, on the morning of the trial, uh, generally civil rights cases at this time, um, had very few local participants because Afri local African-Americans were fearful to be identified as resisting uh, the white power structure. So civil rights trials would have maybe the leadership of the NAACP and a few ministers, but the local folks would not show up. Well, on the morning of the trial in May of, of uh, 1951, when the, uh, uh, when the case uh, uh, commenced for trial, um, a remarkable thing occurred. Uh, African-Americans from across South Carolina arrived as the sun rose in Charleston, and they lined a broad street as far as the eye could see. Thurgood Marshall arrived that morning to try the case, and he was amazed at the crowd. He had never seen such an audience for a civil rights trial. And he turned to Robert Carter, his, uh, his young assistant, who later became a federal judge, and said, Bob, it's all over. And Judge Carter later told me this story. He, he said, Thurgood, what you talking about? And he says, they're not scared anymore. They're not scared. It's great. 
And, uh, and um, the case was tried um, uh, over two days. Um, Kenneth Clark, the famous doll studies, with first uh, inaugurated that testimony, was in the courthouse. It's the first time in American history such testimony had ever been offered in a federal uh, courtroom. Uh, and um, the, the two, um, the, the, and, and let me say, Marshall was spectacular. He's, he cross-examined the state with, state's key witness, crushing him. His name, Jim, was Crow. Last name was Crow. You can't make it up. Okay. Uh, and, um, and Marshall crushed him. It was, it was one of his favorite cross-examinations. I've got the transcript. It is really quite a, quite a cross-examination. The crowd, which was mostly African-American, was thrilled uh, uh, with watching the great Thurgood Marshall try this case. By the way, as a, as a footnote, sitting on the back row watching it was a young South Carolina State law graduate uh, waiting his bar exam results. His name was Matthew Perry. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the majority of the panel, uh, Judge J. John J. Parker and Timmerman, predictably upheld the constitutionality of segregation. But Judge Waring, writing, frankly, a dissent for the ages, uh, declared segregation per se inequality and, and, and uh, indicated that it violated the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and needed to be overruled. Um, the case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, the first of five cases, as you mentioned earlier, that went up there from Virginia and Delaware, uh, 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 District of Columbia, and, uh, and uh, Kansas, uh, uh, Topeka, Kansas. Uh, for reasons that remain still to this day something of a mystery, uh, the first case was not called Briggs versus Elliott. Normally, the first case arriving is gets the name but it was Brown versus Board of Education. Many people uh, have speculated that the reason that was so was the Supreme Court did not want the case ending segregation to come from the South. They wanted it to come outside the South and Topeka, Kansas, of course, is not in the South. So that was the thinking. Our mutual friend Cecil Williams has for years campaigned to have the court rename the case uh, um, uh, Briggs versus Elliott. Um, nobody probably has done more to commemorate the hero heroics of um, of, uh, of, the, of the Briggs plaintiffs than our friend, Mr. Williams. He, is, he has been quite a, quite a, a documenter of their courage and, uh, and vision. Yeah. But just let me uh, stop you here for a moment because um, I subscribe to a theory that floats around about the naming of this case. Now, I um, have not done any legal research of this, but I, read enough books on the subject to adopt this theory that John W. Davis, who was the 1924 uh, Democratic nominee for president of the Who United was his States. vice president? Who was his vice presidential nominee? Who was John W.? Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin was his, was his vice president, okay. <laughs> but if he was a dedicated segregationist. Un, 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 unreconstructed. Right. So he goes around defending all these cases. And his argument was, as you said earlier, the law was as enunciated in classic. So they were not breaking the law. They were not challenging the, They were challenging the way of life. 
and segregation being the way of life in the South. Now, some people think that Thurgood and others were a little sensitive to John W. Davis's argument. And uh, one of the reasons they became Brown rather than Briggs was because that was the only case that was not a Southern case. All the other cases came out of well, you could you, you could have you could have had Delaware. You could have had Delaware. You know, well, Delaware was a slave state. Uh, yeah, um, I, I've had some spirited discussions with with President Biden on the subject of what was more important, the Delaware case or the uh, or the South Carolina case. Uh, uh, well, when, I've had those arguments with, with Joe too, so I know <laughs> what he said about it. Yeah. Uh, but, not um, taking anything away from the Delaware Supreme Court, but they did not. They ruled that Plessy was still good law. They just wouldn't. They said it was violated, and they didn't allow. They desegregated the Delaware schools, but did not overrule Plessy. Judge Waring right. was the only one who said Plessy violated the American Constitution. That's, and what is remarkable, that is the holding. The Waring language and reasoning is the holding of Brown versus Board of Education. Absolutely, absolutely, he is the father of Brown. That's, that's correct. So I don't know whether uh, that was the agreement, but it's a story that I tell uh, because John W. Davis, and you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, when you go through all of this, uh, some of it you pick up, you just go with what you feel most comfortable with. Yeah. And I feel kind of comfortable with- um, Well, you know, it, who, who knows, you know, the-, the, the it, there, there's a there is a benign explanation, which is that um, the court remanded um, ple um, um, the Briggs case for further factual findings and then returned it. And the fact that it went down and came back up, some would say, well, it wasn't the oldest case anymore. But I that's not normally the way it works. Right. There's something was going on there, and yeah. uh, and. Um, uh, I, I will tell you that I, I was on a program some years ago with uh, a, a, a lawyer uh, then in his 90s who had been involved in the case as John J. Park uh, at, um, as uh, John Davis's assistant at the Davis and Polk Law Firm, and um, he described the you know the how Davis got involved, which was because he was a friend of Jimmy Burns who was then the governor, and they were trying to defend segregation. Uh, Jimmy Burns was another unreconstructed uh, 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 Southerner, and um, he called John Davis, got him involved, and at the end of the um, of the of our program, they asked this lawyer. They said, "What's your thought about the outcome?" And he says, "Thank God we lost." <laughs> I think I may have heard that story. I know I heard the relationship between John W. Davis and Jimmy Burns. Uh, of course, you know, Jimmy Branch was pretty, uh, pretty influential national uh, major politician. figure. He he was he was probably, uh, you know, his uh, his 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 um, resistance to. I mean, he, you know, he led the fight in the Senate as a senator against uh, ending lynching as a, making ending lynching a federal crime. He right. led that fight, and uh, as 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 sort of one of the stories was he ridiculed Walter White sitting in the balcony during the debate, saying that these, these senators were his puppets and they were ridiculed. Well, years later, um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was trying to decide who was going to be his vice president for his fourth term. 
Walter White went to see um, Franklin Roosevelt and said, it cannot be Jimmy Burns. <laughs> Told yeah, him the story. You know, Jimmy Burns wanted it to be him. Uh, Jimmy wanted that uh, job uh, pretty much. I, 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 I do believe that, um, of course, I made the big mistake campaigning up in uh, Pennsylvania one time uh, several years ago, and it turned out uh, that there was a Wallace running for Congress. Uh, and I don't know why I wouldn't, I just wasn't thinking that night. I'm having dinner uh, with this guy and his, and his wife, talking to him about his campaign. Of course, he uh, ran a real good campaign, had a lot of money to spend, but he, he did not win. Well, it turned out, I mentioned my fondness for Truman during that dinner. And I noticed that his wife got quiet uh, afterwards. Um, and I didn't really figure it out until after dinner was over that I was talking to Henry Wallace's grandson. <laughs> <laughs> and well, let me, let, me let me tell you something. Harry yeah. Truman was not a perfect person. None of us are, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, when he became committed, really, I mean, if you, you can trace his awakening to being told by Walter White about the blinding of Isaac Woodard. I mean, literally out of that comes the effort to desegregate the military. I mean, the, the letter that follows to the attorney general tells the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard and then says, we got to do more. And I'm going to appoint a presidential commission on civil rights. That commission recommends the desegregation of the military. And, you know, what is so remarkable about Isaac Woodard, who has been, I think, largely an unknown figure in American history, out of his tragic blinding, two major things happened. The desegregation of the armed forces of the United States and Brown versus Board of Education, the two seminal events that led to the end of Jim Crow in America, and both arose out of Isaac Woodard's incident. You're right about that. And you know, you may know about this, uh, but um, a couple of years ago, uh, along with uh, one of my colleagues here uh, in the House, uh, we've introduced legislation uh, with two names on it. One of them being Isaac Woodard, uh, dealing uh, with trying to restore uh, some of the benefits to the descendants of World War II soldiers who came back and did not get the benefit of the GI Bill. They plainly did not. It's a major issue of, of uh, I mean, a great deal of American wealth today came from uh, returning white soldiers who were able to purchase homes. Absolutely. And, and um, I, I talked that we have a little group here called the South Carolina Business Council. I, I spoke with them over breakfast this morning. And um, I, I told them, about the GI Bill, you know, my research indicated of the first 3,000 GI Bills that were granted, the first 3,000, only two went to Black people. Oh, they, they redlined Black neighborhoods. They, yeah. you know, it, it was awful. It was really awful. And so, as you said, this wealth gets passed on. If you use it to go to school and get an education, uh, then you equip uh, to break the cycle. If you use it to buy a home, then you get the equity and you pass that on to your children, your grandchildren. Uh, but if only the white soldiers were getting that and the black soldiers were not, then the wealth, that in and of itself tells you a little bit about the wealth gap. 
Uh, I, I think it I contributes. My, I think it it significantly impacts. Let, let me tell you a story I always loved. Um, it is largely unknown that the University of South Carolina was the first public law school in America to admit African Americans. From 1870 to 1877, 21 graduates um, uh, became lawyers out of the University of South Carolina. If you trace those the, the descendants, the um, the people, the, the children, grandchildren, and, and later generations of those 21 lawyers, they are some of the most accomplished African-American families in America. It shows you how a little opportunity rolls down and expands over many generations. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Richard T. Griner, uh some people pronounce it Griner, uh, Greener or Griner, whatever it is, uh, the first uh, university, he was African-American and was a professor. Right, graduated uh, from Harvard. Uh, yes, uh, at the University of South Carolina. And it was the first school uh, to integrate its faculty. Yes. And also a librarian there. Um, so we've got a rich history that we don't tell uh, so much about our history uh, that we uh, hear repeated all the time. Uh, doesn't do uh, the state uh, as um, uh, what I think should be done for the state. And we need to start telling these stories. Uh, you know, um, uh, I, I want to mention, the, you talk about the cases, the voting case, Elmo versus Rice. Uh, that's the case that was just wearing. Correct. The white, uh, so-called white primary case. That's right. That's desegregated. The so-called uh, what we call Democratic primary was a was sort of a private private club. club private club. They compared it to a women's sewing society. Right. Uh, Judge Waring said that that women's sewing societies do not elect the president of the United States. Right. So that's a good case. Then you know you look at uh, equal pay for teachers. Uh, I forgot the name of that case, but that. As a wearing case. So, you know, uh, we've now renamed, and you were a big part of this. I want you to talk about that a little bit. Tell us what went into you. You remember we worked with Fritz Hollins. Fritz Hollins called me on the phone uh, one day and told me he needed me to introduce a piece of legislation, uh, taking his name off of the courthouse that you now sit in and replacing it with Jay Wade's wearing. I, I thought Fritz had the head of. It had a fall or something. Uh, well, he talked to me about it. You called me about that. And I, I said, I said, uh, Congressman, Fritz has been talking to me about this for five years. Yeah. I'm glad he's talking to somebody else. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the one interesting thing about that, um, uh, I did some research. I called the Congressional uh, CRS, I think we call it Congressional Research Service, uh, and asked them, whether or not anybody had ever requested that their name be taken off of a federal courthouse or post office. Never, never had happened. Else. Never. Never had happened before. And so one of the things, you know, I mean, I spoke at Fritz Hollins's homegoing services. I, I told that story. Uh, as, as did then former Vice President Biden told the story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Joe In fact, he came that. up to me afterwards and said, did I get the story right? And I said, every word of it. That's right. So, you know, Fritz was a remarkable guy that way. But, you know, 
Jay Wade is wearing. Um, he and J.A. Delane, who organized those school children there in um, uh, Summerton, uh, an AME minister, had to be smuggled out, uh, smuggled out of the state. And uh, the two of them got together up in New York. They, were, they lived out the balance of their lives in New York. Well, of course, now, uh, J.A. Delane came back to Charlotte. He never came back to South Carolina. Because there was a pending warrant out for him. Absolutely. Some trumped-up charge. He could never return to his home state of South Carolina. But, you and know, yeah. John West got elected governor. The first job he gave me was to plan a homecoming for J.A. Uh, uh, Delane. And um, we couldn't have that homecoming because there was only one guy left in the little town that I now represent, so I never talk about the town, because it's in my congressional district, uh, who would not take his name off that warrant. Everybody else had passed away, but this guy was still living, and we could not get him back here because the guy would not relent. Uh, that was a shame. So he ended up coming back as, as close to South Carolina as he could get, in Charlotte, North Carolina, passed away there, and that's where he's buried. Uh, you know, there was a story, his son, Joe, who I know you know, and I know, uh, told me this story that uh, right before Judge Waring was preparing to leave the bench, he invited um, the Delane family to his home for, for lunch, which, believe me, in 1952 was not a common practice in South Abroad in, Char in Charleston. And, um, and Reverend Delane came and his wife and the kids. And Joe was then uh, 17 years old. And uh, Judge Waring asked him, um, uh, where do you, what are you thinking about for after you finish high school? And he said, uh, well, my father wants me to go to Johnson C. Smith, because that you're talking about Charlotte, you had the connection to Charlotte. And he said, um, but I, I, I don't want to go there. And, um, and Judge Waring said, well, where do you want to go? He says, well, I want to go to Lincoln University. Well, Joe told me his father after lunch was furious with him. He had an arrangement with John C. C. Smith. He had no money, and he was they were going to let him because because of his heroics, let his son go to the school there. And here was, and here was um, him telling Judge Waring that he wanted to go to Lincoln University. Well, Joe says shortly thereafter, a letter comes unsolicited from Lincoln University, um, granting him a full scholarship. That's, that's where he, that's where he attended and graduated. That's great. That's great. Oh, there's some historical significance there, and I can understand some of that, not just uh, the name of the school, but there's some pretty um, uh, outstanding people of color who, who went to that school. It was a, you know, and, and he, he considered, Joe considered a transformative moment in his life that he attended Lincoln. That's great. It's a great campus. I've been on the campus. I have as well. Yeah. Well, I know we've talked a lot about this case, and it may be that there are some other things that may grow from this. We'll see what happens uh, with uh, legislation we've got pending here uh, to deal with um, uh, is descendants of the returning World War II veterans uh, of color. And there's some other things that we're working on. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education, we've now, uh, the president signed that bill last week, a bill that I put forth some time ago to bring these other four uh, cases into the National Park Services 
supervision. I think, know, it's, I think it's a wonderful, um, wonderful idea. Well, thank you. Um, uh, Bob Doe did a good job, I think, uh, in commemorating the 50th anniversary, uh, but it would have been a much better job if all five of the cases uh, had been honored at that time. So thanks to Joe Biden, uh, we're now doing that. Uh, and so uh, we're going to have those sites there in Somerton, uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, over in Farmville, Virginia, and, and up in um, uh, up in Delaware, uh, under the Park Service, and we're going to have a network. Uh, so well, we many. need to keep we need to keep telling this story Absolutely. about the South Carolina origins of this case. And Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, you know, on the night of of um, of Brown versus Board, Jim, you said it's fifty eight years. You're denying a decade of your life. It's sixty eight years ago. Uh -huh. uh, uh, I think I'm yeah, right. 60, I kept saying 58. Yeah, yeah, 60. You're, you're cutting years. off 10 years off your life there. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, um, I, the, um, uh, you know, I think it's important that we tell the origins. You know, on the night of May 17, 1954, um, Walter White and the leadership of the NAACP traveled to the home of Judge Waring, who was then retired and living in New York. And he, um, to, sell, to, to toast him on his courage that had become the majority opinion, had become the court's opinion in Brown. And Walter White, the great civil rights leader, toast Judge Waring in front of this crowd of people in his apartment and said, wait us, your vision has been accomplished. But you, what you did and what I did and what Thurgood did had no effect if we did not have the courage of the plaintiffs from Somerton. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'll close with this. When I was running for Congress back in 1992, uh, Harry and Eliza Briggs, you know, when they left South Carolina, they went down to Florida. Uh, and of course, um, uh, they had um, retired from the uh, world of work and they had moved back to Summerton. And um, uh, after Harry, Harry passed away, uh, before uh, I uh, started my run for Congress. Uh, but Eliza, his wife, his widow, uh, and Mrs. Nelson, uh, who was her, uh, Mrs. Washington, her running buddies, uh, they're all in this movement together. Uh, she called me one day and she said to me that um, she was very much uh, involved in my campaign and she wanted me to plan my trips around the district so I can occasionally stop uh, and have uh, some of her biscuits. <laughs> people, I mean, I'm sorry I missed those. I would have joined you. Oh, she and Mrs. Washington were great cooks. And I used to stop there at St. Mark's Church. They would go in the kitchen and, uh, and fix breakfast for me. Well, you know, I've heard these stories that when Thurgood Marshall would travel to these small towns to try cases, that he just devoured the food of these wonderful cooks. He became kind of an expert on where to get the best fried chicken and the best. And of course, they were so honored to have him in their homes that they, you know, they, they all just you know put out the best for him. Yeah, I may I may be the only person to run for Congress and uh, uh, and gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me thank you so much for having this conversation here with me. And thank you for uh, reminding me that I am uh, 10 years older than I was when I started this show. 
there was a 60, 68th anniversary. I'm getting up, getting ready for my 82nd birthday. I should remember that because I was coming home from school, 13 years old, uh, when that case came down. And I was born in 1954. So that that's Mark's. Uh, I was I was born uh, in August of 54. So uh, and, and I'll tell you when we when we dedicated the um, the naming of the court the renaming of the courthouse. You were there, Congressman. Yes. Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States, spoke, right. and he said at the time he said he was born in 1951, the year of the great Waitus Waring dissent in Briggs versus Elliott. That's great. And he said because of Judge Waring's vision, all the opportunities I've had came, you know, came to fruition. That's great. Well, uh, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for all that you've done, not just uh, in heralding the life uh, of Isaac Woodard, but also uh, the work you've done uh, on that um, judicial center there. I don't know that. Um, I would have gotten up the nerve to file that bill uh, if I had not uh, had you uh, involved with me. Of course, neither one of us could stand up to the presence of Fritz Hollins. Uh, it's what he wanted. And both of us, uh, along with um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator uh, Graham was an ally in this. He certainly was. Absolutely. I've always been able to get into work with him on these judicial things. Yes. Uh, not much else, but on the judicial things, uh, we see eye to eye. He, he is a great friend of the court. Right, absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening uh, to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Such a privilege to be with you, Congressman. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.